Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Bang 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 Mr. Sandman Mr. Sandman bring me a dream bum 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 make him the cutest one that I've ever seen don't have nobody to call my own Mr. Sandman turn on your magic beam Mr. Sandman bring me a dream <laughs> wow, that's that's one of our worst. <laughs> that's one of our worst vocal arrangements. I mean, we've had some bad ones, but you know what? If I turned that on <laughs> for the opening of an episode and I heard that, I would turn it off immediately. So those who stuck through that, you're in for a treat. And you're in for a dream is what you're in for, because this is my dream today. And give me two lips like roses and clover. Then tell him that his lonesome nights are over. I should just give you the whole thing. I was like, I'm going to give a skimmed down version. Let's do it again. No, 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 God. Uh, But, good. you know, I'm happy that you're ready to give the whole performance, Troy, um, because that song. The song. Okay, so the song. Synonymous. It is. It's synonymous with this or the Golden Girls. Remember the scene in the Golden Girls where they're singing to that baby in that damn baby carriage? Oh, I oh, I mean, and the best of both worlds, really. Either it's going to be, either you're going to get me talking about the Golden Girls, or you're going to get me talking about slashers. And you, if you know one thing about me at this point, Troy, everybody at this point knows that I would say your your top favorite movies. You got Black Christmas. Some of the top titles that you favor in the genre, I think people can read you like a book. For me, I often proclaim that this film that we're covering today is, in fact, one of my number one favorite slashers of all time. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know at this point in the game, if I, if I would say it is my favorite slasher of all time Um, after a revisit, you know what, coming at it with a somewhat critical lens, um, I see some of the flaws and I see some of the gripes that people have, but you can't tell me that this film isn't fun as motherfucking hell. Come on now. No, I've always I've told you this. I have always loved Halloween 2. I I even believe that Halloween 2 is the first Halloween film I ever saw as a kid. I think I saw two before the first one. I've always had a a a strong adoration for this film. Um and it it, it hasn't changed, although as you just said, you know, going back and and watching it to to do this podcast episode, you know, I did was I as enthusiastic about it as I was as an eight-year-old child? No. Um, but still, it, it's it's a hell of a fun film. And let's let's be honest, it's a hell of a good sequel. Um, and that's really what we should focus on. This is a sequel, I think, done right. And if they would have just left the franchise with these two films, Halloween 78 and, and this one, it would have been perfect in my eyes. 
um, because this is really the perfect continuation of the first film. Now we can get into the dynamics of bringing up the Michael Myers sister with Laurie Strode thing they throw in, but regardless of that, which to me in this film seems almost kind of like just kind of thrown in there and it just never really goes anywhere. Um, so it doesn't bother me as much as it may some people because in this particular film, I, I don't think it really is a, a huge of a, 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 a an idea or a concept that it then it becomes in the later in the franchise that some people have a problem with. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, I'm fully prepared to like get in deep when it comes to the topic of the Laurie Strode Michael Myers sibling relationship because there are people who love it, there are people who hate it. I am I am definitely going to fall in the camp of people who think that it enhances the storyline. I think that when you are going to bring a sequel into the mix, the goal is to build upon the initial story. If you're going to do a direct continuation like this, you've got to make sure you're not giving people the exact same thing. You know, you want to give them uh, an evolution upon the original film, growth, development. You want to surprise them. I mean, come on. Like, I don't think anyone saw that coming. And at least, like, the way the original film sets up as it evolves into this next entry, the sequel, I don't think it seems forced I like really think that it's something that like when you look at how things progress, the sequence in the original film with them walking by the old Myers house, her family, you know, the realtors that are handling the property. And now it comes to this movie and she already has all these ties to Michael Myers and the Myers family. To me, like it just didn't feel like that weird of a, a call. Like, okay, like we need to give him some more motivation. It's either that or like, what, are you just going to give me like a slumber party massacre kind of setup where it's just a bunch of random people getting killed by a random guy with no relationship whatsoever? No, like I want to feel something. I want to care about something. And what I think this movie did is it gave me something as a viewer to be more invested in when it comes to these characters. Of course, folks, we are very timely and we are discussing the 1981 sequel Halloween 2 directed by Rick Rosenthal who Roger has a distinction I think of directing the best sequel in the franchise and the worst sequel in the franchise because he directed Resurrection what a what a distinction what a distinction how how does that happen you know I'm really baffled by the choices that were made uh, on behalf of this man because clearly he can produce something that is a rather effective horror film like if you don't like the movie because of the choices it makes in the sense of the storyline you can't deny that there are some truly phenomenal moments of suspense and terror in this film some of the series the franchise best kills i would say happen in this movie there are several fantastic moments of just building dread and there are several great chase sequences towards the end of the film that really i mean if you're looking for a chase scene that gets your heart pumping get laurie strode drugged up on morphine running through a hospital with a broken leg i mean come on nothing scarier than that and i uh, other than that wig i mean let's we'll talk about the wig too because i think that wig gets a gets a gets a bad rap i think that wig really gets a lot of hate from the gays and we're gonna get deep about it but yeah we're talking about halloween 2 which i think was a bold choice for us to make this call because we've never technically covered the first halloween but like i think it's 
it's a film that like if you if you're a horror movie fan if you're a slasher fan you've just talked about halloween so much it's almost a little i would say exhausting and i feel when i say that halloween 2 is my favorite in the fan the franchise part of it's because it's just not so oversaturated like i've seen so much of the original halloween I've seen it so many times. I have had conversations about it with so many people. I've had debates about it. I've shared my thoughts and opinions. I think it's absolutely, truly a masterclass of, of low, of lower budget filmmaking. It was not a big budget film and they still pulled off something amazing, but I'm frankly, I'm just kind of tired of talking about it, especially with the recent resurgence of the series with the 2018 film and moving forward. Halloween two though, I don't get a chance to talk about it that much. Well, I think the problem with a film like Halloween, covering a film like Halloween, is like, what are we going to say about it that hasn't been said before, either on another podcast or a blog? I don't know. It's the same issue as I have with like covering, and we have covered like films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We had the lovely Hope Madden on for that one, um, but I thought that generated a really interesting discussion from a female perspective. But like even films like Scream, it's like I always worry about covering those films because like. What are we, what's going to, what can we possibly say that hasn't been said before? Yes. Halloween's a masterpiece of suspense. Um, what I, I, I appreciated watching Halloween two now for this particular episode was the fact that there are so many iconic moments in this film that, that are synonymous with the franchise, not just this film, but the franchise itself. And, um, and you're right. There are some very carefully expertly crafted sequences of suspense that we're going to get to, but I think we should just dive right in because this is gonna, you know, this could be a, an interesting conversation for us. Uh, I think the first bold choice the film made Roger right out of the gate was having it set exactly the second, the first film ends, even though it, it's, it was filmed several years later, two or three years later, um, they set it literally the same night. I mean, this film picks up exactly where one ends. Um, I mean, you, you even get the whole recap of the final moments of Michael attacking Lori, Dr. Loomis coming in and shooting Michael off the balcony. And then the film picks up from that moment where we see then Loomis go downstairs and realize that Michael Myers, body is gone. And that's where the film picks up. One interesting thing. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, and I'm curious, curious about this. I kind of see why they did it, but then on, on the other hand, I kind of don't see why they did it. But like the moment that Loomis shoots Michael Myers and he falls off the balcony, that is completely new footage. That is not footage from part one. And did you notice that when Michael lands on the grass in this film, it is grass, like it's full lush grass. If you go back and watch the ending of Halloween, which I did just to like, I'm, I'm not imagining things. When Michael falls off the balcony in, in the original Halloween, he lands in dirt. There's like literally no grass. He just lands in dirt in the, in the yard and the balcony is different. Um, I thought that was an interesting choice that they refilmed that sequence. I kind of get maybe why they did it. So they had Loomis run out and see this imprint in the grass, which would be a lot more of effective visual than just a pile of dirt. But I always found that intriguing that they reshot that whole sequence. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a bold choice. Like you said, it's a bold choice to, to pick right up where they left off. And honestly, I do think it's one of the best choices they make overall in the course of the film, because for the most part, a few aesthetic or continuity choices aside, like what you've mentioned, this film does a pretty 
flawless job of recreating the tone and the overall just energy and vibe of the original film, you know, carrying right off into a, se- a separate piece of cinema, it feels part of that same universe. I buy it. I believe that this is the direct continuation of what happened. Um, I really enjoy the world that we're, expands upon uh, Haddonfield. You know, we get to go to the hospital here soon. We get to meet more characters. And it just feels really authentic to me. And um, yeah, I, I, I noticed that too, because I, I remember thinking like, God, like who would land in the grass and leave that specific of an imprint? Like it's it's like, it's like almost like a, like a chalk outline of a corpse that like has dropped to the ground. Like it's so specific and very obvious, but it does leave like a striking image. Um, and it does edit in pretty seamlessly with, with the footage that we get from the original film. And we've seen this done before where a movie will kind of open up with the events of the original movie. And this film does... J- a really great job. It gives us just enough of what transpired in the first film to perfectly segue into this one. It's not like they like are trying to kill time with it. They're just kind of reminding you what happened. So as this naturally continues, you're like right back in it. Um, and it just does a really good job as it starts to take you through like the alleyways of Haddonfield, different areas of the town. It just, it does a really good job of expanding on that world. I really, really appreciate that aspect of this movie quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think it does flawlessly just lead right into uh, a a perfect, uh, a perfect continuation of, of the events of the first film. And again, when I talk about that, I I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that this is like the perfect sequel. Like if they could have ended it with this, you would have had a, a nice fleshed out, seamless story. That, like you said, felt authentic. I could buy that this was everything happened on the exact same night and stuff. But yeah, you you then uh, you get you get Loomis running out, realizing that Michael's gone. He touches the grass, gets some blood on his hands. Neighbors come running out. He tells him to call the police. And then we get that iconic opening credits shot of the the the. I mean, it's iconic. The Halloween opening credits for one and two are, are iconic. The pumpkin. You know, as it slowly splits open and it reveals a skull over the now, I mean, ubiquitous Halloween theme that is used, I think, meticulously in this film. Um, I love the score in this film. I mean, I think that it hits the right beats at the right time. Um, And then, you know, we we, we get after the opening credits, we like you said, we get these uh, POV shots of Michael just stalking through. This, the, the dark alleys of Haddonfield and it, it definitely replicates the POV shots of Michael walking through Haddonfield in the be- in the first film. But we also get like the Halloween atmosphere, the kids running around in costumes. All of the houses have jack-o'-lanterns. It, it looks very Halloween-ish. It looks like it's a continuation of the same night. Um, and it, I, you, you, you do expand the Haddonfield universe a little bit, right? It, right up to getting introduced to the Elrods, Mr. and Mrs. Elrod. Roger, you remind me so much of Mrs. Elrod making that damn Harold his sandwich in the kitchen. You want some mayonnaise, Harold? How about some mustard? You're my, you're my Harold. You're the Harold to my Mrs. Elrod. Absolutely. The one who apparently he, she's so annoying that he just started beating her as, oh as the God. neighbor girl. We played. are going to get, yeah, <laughs> We're gonna get, like, that's a statement to make about people. But, um, but no, um, I, I, I do really want to touch on, cause you're going to be shocked about this. And I, I do need to acknowledge in this moment, cause this is a key example of it. I shit on the 2018 extension of this, of the franchise quite a bit. 
as we know. But I've got to give it some credit. After watching this film and watching this opening as he's moving through the alleys, going through the Elrod's house and so forth, they did a phenomenal job in the, the more recent remakes recreating Haddonfield. And this whole moment, um, this moment really very much reminds me of Halloween Kills. Um, and I, I, more so than ever now after rewatching this, I'm just baffled. I'm baffled that they chose to omit this from that that. Uh, installment in the franchise, the whole choice to, you know, just kind of act like the whole sibling thing never happened, act like Halloween 2 never happened, yet still contains so many nods to it, so many acknowledgments. You see this same alleyway, for the most part, recreated in Halloween Kills. Um, you see that whole moment with the kids uh, making fun of um, I think, what was it, like a Tommy Doyle or whatever it was. There's that whole scene, this flashback moment of the kids in what it looks to be like the same alley. You've got a moment again with Loomis in the alley where he's like, I shot him! I shot him six times! Like, they, they keep nodding to these moments that feel very Halloween, too. I do not understand for the life of me, Troy, why they chose to not move forward with this being part of the story. Because I think it would have added so much more to it. I don't know. I guess... I, I can't answer that, Roger. It's it's the it's the question of the the ages, right? Um, and you know, it pissed a lot of people off when they announced that they were going to basically ignore Halloween two and everything after it. Some people actually love the idea because there are Roger very vocal people that hate the fact that Laurie and Michael were revealed as siblings in this one. And you know what? I get it. I get it. Um, but to your point then why so carefully replicate things from this particular film, right? Uh, if you are pretending it never happened, uh, right down to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital looking exactly the same, you know, things like that. But um, but that's a conversation for if we ever cover those films later on. This is Halloween, too. And I do love the fact that, you know, you get Michael going right into that Elrod's house as the news comes on that is that catches Mrs. Elrod's attention about bodies, three teenage bodies being found. And as she's watching TV, we get the the the. The, the iconic shots. And I love these shots of Michael Myers, like just appearing behind somebody. And it, and it happens several times in this film. And I think it's super effective. They recreate that whole vibe of Michael just coming out of the darkness really well here, but we get Michael coming into the Elrod's kitchen, getting her knife. We think he's going to stab this poor old broad. Um, you know, he, he doesn't thank God. He leaves, he leaves Miss Elrod alone and he goes out of the house with those, with his butcher knife. And then she goes to finish making Harold his sandwich and she, her, 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 her whole cutting board is covered with blood and she has, lets out that scream. Ah! And then, yes, we get this neighbor, uh, Alice, uh, who comes running out of the house and is like, Miss Elrod, Mr. Elrod, are you Okay. She goes back inside and she gets on the phone with her friend and she says, and I was like, what? She's like, yeah, that's, that was the Elrods. Uh, she's always picking on him. So uh, he probably just decided to start beating her. <laughs> and she says it so nonchalantly, like, and then go over and help the poor woman. Like, really? That is a bold accusation to make about anybody, especially with like, I mean, does she have any like proof of this accusation of abuse elder abuse between this couple but here she is claiming this guy's beating his wife it's 1981 things are different then well technically it's 1978 yes. this is a direct continuation um but yeah this whole thing leading into alice i really love the setup of this there's so many little details that i think are so 
awesome. Like the Elrods, it, Night of the Living Dead is still playing on the TV. Connects to the first movie where they're watching all the horror movies. Of course, it's Night of the Living Dead. It's in public domain. But I love hearing that soundtrack in the background. It's the same scene. Every time someone's watching Night of the Living Dead in this movie, same fucking scene. I don't know how many times they're going to show Barbara getting attacked, but whatever. But little details. Then when Alice is on the phone, she turns on the radio. And I really love the development of like, now people are aware of Michael and there's a panic starting to develop within Haddonfield. And you're starting to hear news reports. News reporters are starting to show up on location. And you have that building panic that I really love to see in a movie like this. You get that a lot in Scream too with that news reporter presence. Um, but this whole moment where she turns on the radio and she's hearing about the bodies discovered and she's like, oh my God, that's like, that's right down the street from me. I could hear the sirens outside. That creeps the shit out of me. I love those little details. She also does a really good, and I think this had to be on purpose. Like her line delivery is exactly um, how uh, Annie delivers her lines in part one, where she where she tells Lori that um, Tommy and Lindsay's parents are gone for the night. It's delivered exactly the same way, the exact same inflections and everything. Did you notice that when she's, when she tells her friend that mm-hmm. her parents are gone and she has, she's like, they are gone for the evening. She says it exactly the same as Annie does in the first one. I thought that was a clever little thing. Um, but yeah. And as she's on the phone getting more panic because she does hear these, these sirens and things, Michael comes in the house. Like he just walks in the front door and, um, she hears a noise and she turns around and sees her front door open. So she has to put her friend on hold and, and walk out into the living room to, um, to investigate. She sees her doors wide open and we do to get this like startle scare, like jump scare, early jump scare of Michael just lunging at her and, and shoving the knife into her chest. And we get this nice, it's a weirdly edited death scene. Like I can't tell, does it stab her twice? Once it's real hard to, to tell. I love the developing, like, again, dread, you know, in the moment where she finds the door open, she starts to creep towards the door. She's like, is anybody there? And then he just jumps out of fucking nowhere. And it's it's a very, like, 1980s startle where he jumps from the bottom of the camera. But, like, if you think about it, it, the great scope of things, like, what was he jumping out from? Like, was he just hiding behind a chair? Or I don't know. Like, the way it's framed, it, it seems kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what happened. But it is startling. Um, you don't see the result of of what he does to her. Um, this being, like, the first kill that you're really getting in the movie, uh, it, it pretty much cuts away. You see her head go back. You see blood splatter. But you don't see where the knife penetrates. You don't know exactly what happened. Um, and it is a surprisingly subdued opening kill for a movie that really does not necessarily skimp on the kills. There's a higher body count here. Um, I was surprised that this was as toned down as it is compared to some of the other sequences we get. Toned down. And like I said, I, I, I the editing of it is very jinky like it's really hard to know exactly what he did but it is the first death it's poor alice you know she she had her little moment um and now we get back to the doyle house we cut to the doyle house and Lori is wheeled out on that stretcher so we get we get introduced to jamie lee curtis reprising her Lori strobe um role wig and all 
Let's talk about that wig real quick, Troy. Let's talk about it. People hate that wig. It's a bad wig, but it's a 1981 wig. And I'm going to give it a little credit, but she's also, girl just got thrown down a staircase. Girl just fought a serial killer. Her hair is voluminous with stress and anxiety. My hair would be all tousled as well. So yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily look like the same hair, but in this case, I'm going to let it slide. I don't think the wig is as offensive as some people make it. What do you think? I mean, I don't think it's offense. It's it's blatantly obvious that it's not her hair. Uh, you know, I think she had. I think she had just filmed. Um, what was it? Perfect. Uh, where she had. Where she had the really short hair. She had to cut all of her hair off. Well, I can't remember the name. I think it's perfect. Was that the film with like John Travolta? I think she had just filmed that, so her hair was all gone. She had short hair. So yeah, they had to throw this wig on her. Um, I mean, whatever. Yeah, if you if you think about it in the context of the, what Laurie Strode went through. Uh, I'm not too bothered by the wig, but you know, we do get her wheeled out of the house and being put into the back of the, um, the ambulance as she's begging not to be put to sleep. And we also get introduced to the very cute as a button, Jimmy, who is one of the paramedics played by Lance Gast. He is so adorable in this film. Dumplin, a dumplin. I like, honestly, I, for the most part, really like all of the hospital staff. I wish... They were given a little more attention, um, but it, they're very secondary, even though they're the focus of what's going on because Lori is sedated for a majority of this film. She still maintains the focus, even when she's passed out. You know Lori's the focus, but there are times that you kind of drift away, follow other storylines. You get a lot of Loomis, who is very gun-happy in this movie. If you thought Loomis in the first movie was a lot, Loomis in Halloween Part 2 is 10 times more. Uh, which I'm, I'm fine with it. But yeah, you get a lot of moments with the staff and I think they're all pretty likable and all pretty well played. Like, I don't think there's really a weak link here, um, which for a 1980s sequel, I think is pretty impressive. No, I do too. And I I, I think I, I put this film in the same sort of light as like a Friday the 13th part two. There's a lot of p- parallels between this film and Friday the 13th part two, honestly. That, that I'll touch on. And I think they both came out around the same time. There, there are two sequels that are just done right. Friday the 13th part two gives us a whole slew of really likable characters, probably more likable than the bunch in the first film. Um, in this film, yes, we get introduced to a whole hospital staff um, that, and we get to kind of know their, their inner workings. And it's kind of, you buy it. It feels very like if you've ever worked in a hospital or anybody that's worked in a hospital, it feels very realistic their interactions and what they're doing and how they react to things. And so it is really interesting to, to just have a whole different dynamic of characters in this film, because in the first film we, we followed basically three teenage girls, right? Lori, Annie, and uh, Linda. And in this film, we get to follow a, a, a more diverse group of characters that are older, that are professionals. And we get to see that kind of how their daily lives happen. And now what is transpiring with Michael Myers. And it is interesting that, you know, Michael Myers, his presence does become very known in this film and people are talking about him and he's all over the news and people are are anxious about him being, you know, missing and all that stuff. So I do like that. And, you know, it, you think about like Halloween, I don't want to keep harping on like the last three films, but like, if you think about like Halloween kills and what it was trying to do, with the whole idea of panic and whatnot. I mean, this film does the same thing, but it does it very subtly. 
I mean, you get scenes in this film of like townsfolk throwing bricks at Michael Myers. I mean, it's that mob mentality there, they're, but it, it's very subtle. It's not hammered in your face. Troy, I, I've got to build off that because I have the exact same note and it's such a specific note to have. The mob mentality that you just mentioned, there are several moments of that that feel, again, if we're talking about like what they did with the 2018 movies, they're directly taking the tone from this film. Several moments in this film feel very, again, Halloween kills, especially that scene coming up outside of the the, uh, the Myers house. Very, very similar vibe going on here, which again, I was really surprised with. Um, but this film, because it takes a more subtle, subdued approach, I have to say it almost has more of an element of realism at times, even though it goes a little more far-fetched with the story, it starts to become a pinch fantastical, Sam Hain comes into play. When you're seeing the characters interacting when you're getting these hospital moments, you're getting a lot of bleak, just empty hospital corridor shots scattered all throughout. It feels very empty, very, um, uh, very just alone. And 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 uh, there's a bleakness to this film that makes it feel just a little more rooted in reality than other entries within the franchise. And I really appreciate that. This movie still has a grasp of it feels like it could be real. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. The only element that gets a little unbelievable in this film is the fact that Michael Myers can't die. You know, he's shot numerous times throughout this. But other than that, yeah, it feels very grounded in in reality. The next scene is one that scared the shit out of me as a kid, and it has nothing to do with Michael Myers. And it's probably the most, the, the one thing I remembered, the one scene I remembered the most from this film as a kid, as we see, we finally get a glimpse of Haddonfield Memorial Hospital and a car pulls up and this woman has her poor son who's dressed as a pirate. And she gets him out of the car and we see that he basically has a razor blade embedded in his mouth. I'm telling you, Roger, this scared the shit out of me as a kid because we were, you know, when we, when we were young, trick or treating is not like it used to be. Let's just acknowledge that trick or treating nowadays is stupid bullshit. But when we were kids, you could go trick or treating all night. Like there was no, Oh, trick or treatings from four to six, blah, blah, blah. No, you could go all night. As long as people had their porch lights on, you were out trick or treating. And you know, there was that late seventies, early eighties panic of, Oh, there's bad people putting needles and Halloween candy and razor blades and Halloween candy. And this film took that image and just threw it in our faces because you get a close up of this poor kid with his mouth and this razor blade is just uh, scared the shit out of me as a kid. I was like, I am never eating a fucking piece of Halloween candy again. Oh my God. Like the spit and the bubbling saliva, just like running down his face, this poor kid. And it's honestly, he gets more fucked up than most people in this movie end up getting and they get killed. Like this kid is fucked up. Um, and I appreciate seeing this because other than this mother-child duo, you don't get really any other patients at this hospital. You get a bunch of babies later. But I will say this this hospital is just stark. It's empty. There's nobody there except for the staff, which some people kind of complain about. But again, it's 1980, 1981, like in a suburban neighborhood. Um, I feel like there's still a believability factor a realism to this i buy it that like in this era you you didn't have these places packed with all kinds of shit i'm sure that when something like that happens it's it's pretty rare and i can see there being sleepy nights in some of these hospitals in these you know these 1980s suburbs you know oh yes a small suburban town like haddonfield you're not gonna have i mean you have to keep in mind yes people it was a different time this was the 80s or seven in this film 78 you didn't have people going to the emergency rooms because they had a cold 
or because they felt like they had the flu. That just wasn't a thing. Um, so I, I could see the fact that this this hospital was as isolated as it was. And it might not even be. I mean, we're, we're only privy to like one specific wing of this hospital for the most of the film where Lori is. But we don't know. There's babies. There could be a elderly room somewhere. We don't know. But the, the film does a a serviceable job of just keeping it contained to a very specific few characters. Um, but yeah, then as this mother, and I love the fact that this mother walks her child in with his razor blade sticking out of his mouth and the, the nurse, the blonde nurse, who is it? Jill acts like she, she couldn't be bothered. She's like, yeah, go have a seat in that room. I'm like, he has a razor blade embedded in his fucking mouth. Can you act a little bit more concerned? She's like, the doctor is busy. He'll be with you in a moment. Busy with what? <laughs> what? What's happening in this hospital? Nothing. There's nothing happening. But yeah, this, and the mother is like, what the fuck are you talking about? My child literally has a razor blade in his mouth and she's like go sit down take a seat no big deal and then we got one Lori Strode getting wheeled on in and everybody runs over to her and starts paying attention to her that <laughs> child leaving him in the wings <laughs> with his mom just panicking <laughs> uh, yeah so Lori's wheeled in they immediately um take her in she she again beg the doctor wreck like everyone in this town knows the Strodes apparently um, because everyone recognizes Lori Strode, the doctor, he's even, Oh, Lori, what are you doing here? You know, she doesn't want to be put to sleep, but they're going to have to like, they have to put her to sleep so they can sew up her, her shoulder and her foot or whatever. So they put her to sleep and she spends the rest of the movie in bed. Um, basically until the last 15 minutes. Oh, but Troy, come on. Like at people, this is another thing that people bitch about, but that is, to me is the scariest aspect of the story for her. I find nothing scarier than being put to sleep in the moment of sheer panic after being attacked by somebody. Last thing you want is to be put to sleep. I'm not bitching about it. I'm just saying she spends the rest of the movie in bed. I think it works right. because we do have a a vast a variety of characters to follow through, you know, through the film with the hospital staff that are actually engaging. Um, it's not like Halloween kills where they just throw her in the hospital bed and we barely see her. I mean, she is prominent in this film, but I mean, yeah. So once they put her to sleep, yeah, she's basically in a hospital room the entire time. And we do get to then focus on some other interesting characters. We get this moment where, Loomis and is driving around with Chief Brackett, and they're looking for Michael Myers. Of course, Loomis keeps taking his gun out, and the, sh the sheriff's home. Like, yeah, just put that away. Put that away. And you know, sh uh, the sheriff keeps making the comment that you let him out. You let him out. And Loomis is like, No, I did not let him out. I, I would never. I wanted him restrained. And you know, the sheriff shining a flash, a flashlight at everybody, and they see this. They see this character in overalls in a, a white mask, like slowly stalking down the street. And so Loomis immediately thinks it's Michael Myers and he makes the sheriff like go drive towards him. And he jumps out and tells all these terrified children to get out of the way. And he's literally going to shoot this person without even knowing who it is. And I mean, it's obvious to us. It's not Michael Myers because like the, the hair on the mask is blonde, very blonde, but this person you know, obviously freaks out uh, because he sees that someone's pulling a gun on him. So he just like walks into the middle of the street and is immediately Roger immediately <laughs> hit by a fucking police car and smashed up against a van and dies a horrible, horrible, fiery death. Loomis just killed somebody <laughs> like Dr. Loomis just killed someone. 
nobody acts and you nobody really acts like they're that concerned about it i get that they think it's michael myers but like nobody is like uh we could have just killed an innocent person we better like but again i guess it makes sense because the the, the car that <laughs> that smashes into this poor kid who we find out later who it is um is the deputy who tells sheriff Brackett that three bodies were found across from the doyles and that one of them is annie's and so of course the sheriff and loomis and the deputy hop into the cop car to go to the um to the doyles house to to investigate what's going on we do get the we do get these moments throughout the film with with jimmy going into Lori's room he's obviously very smitten with Lori. he he's comforting to her he even offers to get her something to drink a coke as he's leaving miss alves nurse alves comes in is it alves yeah all i think it's alves virginia we'll call her virginia (laughs) virginia very stunning i very stunning woman um stern she tells jimmy he has to get out of the room and you know she's like it's kind of funny because throughout the film like it's her and jimmy are kind of like little foes because he's fixated on Lori and she obviously is the head nurse. So she wants Lori to get the, get a rest. So they're always like having these little quips that are kind of, kind of funny. Um, but I do appreciate the fact that Jimmy is, is such a sweet, caring guy. And you can tell he definitely wants to protect Lori. I think Jimmy had the potential to be a character that honestly could have, should have resurfaced in the series you know, because as, as we know, this ending is pretty open-ended, but he does provide a great dynamic opposite of Laurie, you know, genuinely cares about her. Uh, and and I really, there's not a lot of scenes of them together, but some of her best moments are honestly opposite him. Some of the dialogue, the hushed dialogue that they have. Um, I really like the chemistry between the two of them. I wish we had more with them. And I really just wish that he would have like resurfaced in the series, in the franchise, because you don't really know what happened to the guy. Well, no, if you want to go down the, the, the other choose your own adventure part of this franchise, where you can literally just have anything willy nilly happen in part four, Jamie, Danielle Harris's Jamie is their child um, is Jimmy and Lori's child. It is revealed in part four that she married Jimmy and that they've died in that plane crash. And Jamie was their child. So he does resurface in the franchise, just not, physically if that makes sense right not actually utilized i would have liked to have seen him return i guess you know because he has a great chemistry with her it is it's sort of like you know kincaid and and sydney in the scream franchise like what right you know anyhow the newscast the the newscasters are all at the wallace's house now roger there is this one blonde broad in this scene that Okay, whatever. I, I wanted to see more from her. Like this nosy bitch. She she's giving me Gail Weathers vibes with like bossing people around and being like, "Oh, you better go get us. You better ask those kids if we can get a statement. If and if they're, but if you have to ask their parents. But if their parents aren't there, get a statement anyways." And she's like real bossy and real like commanding. And she's like in the background. I was like, okay, this is gonna be a, a, a prominent character, and she like never shows up again. Oh, you're talking about Deborah Lane. Everyone's favorite local news reporter, Deborah Lane. Oh, yeah, there's a whole story behind this. And I am prepared to, to go in deep with Deborah Lane. So there was actually, um, there were there were a series of rewrites of the film. Um, and 
uh, at one point they and they filmed this. I don't think the the footage exists, but I I do know that they filmed this. So Deborah Lane, who was who was played by Catherine Bergstrom from Mash, lest we forget. Um, but so she was a bigger character, and there was a whole sequence that was filmed of her car breaking down and Michael cutting her throat. And, and, and this character had a story arc. And um, they filmed it, and they decided that it just wasn't, I guess, effective enough. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, this scene was shot. They did remove it. So that's why when you see this sequence here, she feels like she's going to have, like, a story arc. She feels like she has a presence. And her cameraman is played by Dana Carvey, which you can't even tell. Cause it's just his profile. Yeah. But like, it's, it's just this weird little scene that had so much more going on to it. And then it was eventually something that they dropped from the storyline, but it was filmed. Oh, that see. I never knew that. I'm glad you're up on your, your, your research. I did not know that, but I, I did get the strong vibe that she was supposed to have a much bigger part in this film. But anyways, so bracket pulls up with Loomis, they get out and bracket has to uh, pull the, the, the sheet back to reveal a poor dead Annie and very somber moment. Um, he has to, he says he better go tell his wife before someone else does. And it is actually Nancy Loomis, the actress. She came back just to play a corpse, bless her heart. And no, so he, he leaves, but before he leaves, he yells at Loomis again. He's like, you son of a bitch, you let him out. And then he leaves and he's kind of MIA the rest of the film. Loomis is adamant with deputy hunt. Is it deputy hunt that, um, it's like, we need to find out for sure that that person that we just burned to death is Michael Myers, because if it's not Michael Myers, you need to feel some guilt. <laughs> we need to feel bad about it. <laughs> he, he, I don't think he's going to, he doesn't feel bad about it, but he's like, more kids are going to be slaughtered tonight. If Michael, if that is not Michael Myers. So, um, you know, he, and the, the, the deputy makes a comment like, oh, you're talking about him. Like he's not a human. He's like, I was a doctor for 15 years. He's not human. He's not remotely human. Uh, and it's it's kind of like they're setting the stage for like the, at least in, in some of uh, Loomis's dialogue, it's really setting the stage for like the supernatural elements of Michael Myers. Oh, He's yeah. Human. He can't die. Yeah, yeah. I do love this dude that's walking down the street with his boom box listening to the news broadcast. It's like, if you're watching, he has his boom box on his shoulder and you, you would think he'd be listening to something a little bit more like, you know, what was popular in 78? I don't know. Leonard Skinner, who knows? But he's literally just listening to a news broadcast that is conveniently revealing that the survivor of the Haddonfield massacre was taken to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital just as Michael Myers bumps into him. And here's this. So that's how Michael knows to go to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital. I got to say about this film, though, I really think one thing worth acknowledging is it, you know, you mentioned earlier, it recreates a lot of this, the the tropes from the first film, the camera styles, the fluidity of the footage, but it does it very well. I mean, this is a pretty damn good looking film and the movement, the motion, the constant movement, it, it really is. Uh, a pleasure to watch and it does make for everything uh feeling that much more intentional because the sequence is very well choreographed like you follow the guy up he's listening to the the, the boom box 
I buy it because everybody in town is buzzing about what just happened. It's a big deal. So I feel like it's something that's on everyone's lips. And, you know, in the midst of this, we are introduced to the character of Karen and her friend Darcy as they're leaving a bar. Her friend asks her to drive her home in this cute little red hot rod. Should she be at a bar when she works? Troy, it's 1981. It's 1978. What am I saying? It's a, It's 1978. Yeah, everyone's drinking, smoking. These broads are obviously coming from a bar or Halloween party, and she's literally going into work. And, you know, it's she with she the babies. Like, <laughs> with babies. She's like, I can't drive you to home. I'm going to be late to work. And her, her, her friend's like, You promised me. Uh, and I, I really do love the, for, I love the Karen character. I, I, from what we get of her, I, I really do like this character a lot. She seems the most realistic to me of the group. Um, although she's fixated with that fucking bub dude who's a fucking asshole um but you know hey good girls hard to look at good girls like the assholes right so karen obviously takes her friend darcy home and she pulls up to the hospital and gets out and we do see a nice shot of michael myers his mask staring at her she's walking in the hospital in her side mirror how out of the way was dropping her friend Darcy off that she, in the time period that it took for her to drive to the hospital, Michael Myers managed to get there? I mean, this girl must have lived on the other side of town because for him to be there, I don't know, did he grab onto the bumper and just drag along? Something. But it makes for a great shot. Like, I'll look past it because that shot of him in the mirror is very effective. Yes, I love the shot. I, um, I th- Again, I think this film does a really great job of utilizing the Michael Myers mask really well oh yeah but we also get this in a this ineffective security guard mr garrett um who his whole his his only job is to like monitor the hospital watch the watch the monitors if this dude would have been doing his job this film never would have happened because he's reading a magazine his feet he's all relaxed he's not even paying attention to the monitors and on the monitor we clearly see michael myers walk into the fucking hospital. <laughs> and he is oblivious. We're, you know, we're talking a lot about the 2018, uh, the, the effects of this on the 2018 series and moving forward. But one thing I want to acknowledge real quick is Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. We've talked about this before. The fact that the opening 10 minutes of that film were very much a hat tip to this, but it's not until rewatching it right now, recently, um, that. I didn't acknowledge just how dead on of a retelling it was. Like you get so many details recreated in that opening sequence in that film. You've got this character, the Mr. Garrett, like they recreate it. You have um, the whole thing of her running down the stairwell. Like you've got several very, very specific shots that, that Rob Zombie just put his own touch on Um, really impressive. And now after revisiting it, you can tell that even though he did his own thing with his Halloween too, and it's, you can love it, you can hate it, whatever um, you could tell that the the moment in it the time period that he did devote to the retelling of this film he took great care with it and he really did his homework on it yeah i was in awe of the first 10 minutes of the halloween 2 rob zombies halloween 2 if the film would have maintained that if it would have if it would have maintained that i would have been absolutely thrilled with it but we all know that was not the case um, so now we get introduced to several other of the characters. Well, we get introduced to Bud, um, and then we have uh, Janet, and they're all in the break room, just kind of sitting around watching the news broadcasts of, of, about Michael Myers. And Janet tells everyone that her friend Julie saw Michael Myers last night walking in a field, 
And Bud says, oh, that Julie's full of shit. And Janet gets mad at him for swearing. She's like, can't you ever say anything that's not shit, fuck, or something? He's like, well, uh, what does he say? He's like, no, I guess I fucked up. And she gets up and walks out. This is when Karen comes in. And it is very obvious right away that Karen and Bud are smitten with each other. They're doing little handsy touches and stuff like that. And as Karen leaves, Bud sings the song, Amazing Grace. Sit on my face. Bub has one thing to describe him. Bub, bud, bud, bud. It's bud. He has one thing to describe him. It's obnoxious. Um, he's he's a pretty thin character, but at least he's well played, you know? But he really is just like the pig of the group. Uh, everything he says is offensive, as pointed out by Janet, who's so delicate and demure. She's my favorite character. I think she's the most believable out of all of them, that sweet little nurse assistant Janet. I think she's really likable. Um, but yeah, I mean, he really is simply just there to be kind of obnoxious and annoying. He does well with it. But if you're looking for something likable in the character, it really doesn't exist. Even Jimmy gets mad at him and tells him to shut up. And, and Bud's like, why? What's your problem? He's like, you know, dude, this could have been your brother. It could have been my brother. Like, why are you why are you making light of, you know, the situation when, when, when we have when people have been murdered? And Bud's like, oh, God, Jimmy's like, take it from me. You don't want to get involved with patients. Nurses, that's a different story. Patients, no way. And we do get some nice POVs of like Michael stalking through the hallway. He's like watching Karen as she goes into the uh, infant room with all the babies. And she watches as Nurse Alves reprimands Karen for being late and basically tells her, you know what, if you're late anymore, you are going to be fired. Like you're a good nurse. I'd hate to lose you. I do like the sternness that Miss Alves has. And I really wish the character we would have got to see a little bit more from the character. I think like her death scenes are a cheat because she is such a dominant figure in the film. And then she doesn't even get a proper moment for a death scene. It's just kind of like, eh. yeah. Uh, and Jimmy goes into Lori's room and he's talking to her and he reveals that Michael Myers was the guy that was after her. And Lori is like perplexed. She's like, Michael Myers, you mean the, the kid who killed his sister? I thought he was in a hospital. He's like, no, 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 he escaped. And, you know, all she can say is, is why me? Why me? But then you can tell it's sort of like triggering something in her that comes into play here in a little bit. I really think this is her acting in this movie. I think this is one of her strongest moments. It's a very subtle moment. But I, I really think that for what she does in this film, she's great. You know, she's great at playing Laurie drugged up. She's great at looking feeble and meek. And then when she has to fucking kick ass, she does that too. Um, I also really want to acknowledge, you know, that moment that happened prior where you saw Michael watching Karen getting reprimanded uh, uh, by Virginia. Um, you have that whole moment of him walking through the um, the nursery with all the babies and you hear them like cooing and giggling and there's always been this idea that you know Michael like some people say Michael is just a vicious killer he'll kill anyone in sight other people say he's more calculated earlier in the movie we saw the older couple that he chose to not massacre but then he chose to kill the girl next door so it's it's hard to de determine like what Michael's driving force is and this movie does make it even a little more vague because he's standing there amongst all these babies and you're fucking terrified he's gonna stab a baby like what if he, what if he just took out that knife and just stabbed a baby like right then and there but i'm sure the babies would react poorly and then everyone would be aware of his 
you know, whereabouts. So that would not be wise on his behalf. Uh, but it is a very uncomfortable moment as you see their little hands and legs kicking all, all around him as he's watching Karen. They do a really good job of planning when they show him from a distance or when they show him like you're watching from his POV or over his shoulder. It's very well played in this. Well, I think that was also like a gripe with Halloween, uh, Halloween kills is remember when he goes through his, when he goes on that massacre, that like one shot massacre as he's going from house to house, he kills that mother. And then, but then there's that, she has that baby in, in its crib and he, he walks over to it and you think he's going to kill it and he walks right by it. So yeah, people are like, Oh, if he's a killing machine, why is he, why is he being like picky and choosy about what he kills? But I don't know. Kill the baby. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, it's, like, it's like Jason in Friday the th- It's like Jason in Friday the 13th part six. Like there was moments where we thought he was going to like kill those kids in the cabin, yeah. but whatever, you know, filmmakers don't want to go there. Very few filmmakers want to go there because they know the backlash, right? So nurse Alves comes in and tells Jimmy he has to leave. Visiting hours are over. And she tells, you know, Lori, Hey, we've been trying to get a hold of your parents all night, but we can't. And you know, I'm going to keep trying. So she picks up the phone and realizes the phones do not work. So she calls lovely Janet in to tell her to go tell Mr. Garrett that they're having trouble with the phone. And so we get this whole sequence with Mr. Garrett giving Janet his walkie as he um, tells her, just wait there for him. He's going to go check out everything. And this is a long sequence. I, I forgot how like drawn out this was. Um, it really is like he is investigating all these nooks and crannies of the hospital. There's this moment where he opens a dumpster and a cat jumps out and we get him startled by a cat. Um, he goes into, you know, he notices that the storage room door is open. So he goes into there and it's really suspenseful because I mean, it's like he's going from door to door. Like he sees all these locks are off the door and as he's, you know, grabbing a lock to open the door things are falling out we don't know what's precisely is going to happen we probably know something's going to happen it's just when is it going to happen um and there's this moment where he's trying to radio janet and she can't work the radio and again it's like these little things like if her if she if her dumb ass would have known how to work a radio again all of this could have been avoided because he tells her you need to call the police someone has broken in <laughs> but she can't i can't work this thing how do you work this thing um but he goes from door to door. And I mean, of course, like by the third door, he opens it. Nothing falls out. We kind of get the sense of relief as, as, it, as the audience. But then he shuts the door and Michael is right there with that fucking claw hammer and hammers him right in the fucking head. Now, this f- sequence, Roger, mirrors the sequence in Friday the 13th part two with the, uh, the, the, the cop that chases Michael into the woods and then finds his cabin and it's kind of open. Do you know exactly? And it ends the exact same way. Jason uh, pops out and puts the hammer claw hammer in his head. Uh, I'm wondering if that was just coincidental. I mean, because they're virtually similar scenes. One just takes place in a, a hospital. The other takes place in the woods in Michael's cabin. I always parallel these scenes, those two scenes together. I've got to say that this, like this scene, for for what it is, what it's doing is, I think superb. There's so much about it that works. Like you mentioned, like her trying to work that walkie-talkie, not hearing what he's saying. The his acting here, where he's like, I think there's somebody who broke into the the storage room. 
you got to call the police right away. Like it's got this great building dread and it is shockingly silent. Like there is no score over the sequence. And I think that does so much favor here because every little sound effect, everything he hears is amplified. It's, it's, uh, magnified, you know, because of that. Um, and another thing about this movie, whereas the first film I think really was a standout in the sense of its shadow play and the darkness of everything. This film, I would say, has the best lighting in the franchise. There are several moments, especially once you start to get into this basement, um, where the scenes are flooded with emergency lights, like the bright red lights, green lights. There's a lot of color play at certain times here uh, that gives it a slightly more evolved and more expensive look at times in the original film. They do a really good job with using some of these really bold, intense colorations, especially with lighting, um, that really make these scenes pop. This is one of my favorite sequences in the film, I think that it works so well because it takes its time. And yeah, the payoff with the hammer is great. And it is extremely similar. You're absolutely right. Um, but I, I would say that this is, is one of my favorite sequences in the Halloween franchise, regardless. Oh yeah. It's, it's great. It's a great exercise in, in building suspense. Very meticulously done. We now cut to Loomis and the deputy at the morgue with the burnt body. And the body is so, so burnt that the, the, the doctor's like, well, there's no way we can ID this without dental records. Um, they're just, there's just, everything is just charred. You know, Loomis is like, okay, we'll have a doctor meet me back here in, in, in 30 minutes with the dental record. And then we get this um, scene of just a mob of people at the Myers house and they're throwing bricks at it and they're chanting and, you know, deputy uh, hunt and Loomis pull up and, you know, there's this whole conversation they have about like Michael Myers has been patiently waiting for this for 15 years. Like he, he, Halloween night, 15 years ago, he murdered his sister and he's back on his anniversary. And he had the, he had his hospital staff like tricked because he was so good at, at just playing silent. Like he never said a word. He was their favorite patient. He never said a word. He barely moved. And he was just waiting patiently for this moment to escape. Um, and the doc, he, he knew the doctors weren't going to be prepared. This is when two boys come up um, and tell deputy that they're worried about their friend, Ben Tramer. We've heard that name before. That's the guy that Lori has a crush on in part one. They're worried about him because he hasn't made it home from a party and he was wearing a stupid mask. Um, he's 17. So right away, Dr. Loomis is like, oh shit, he's 17. Uh, okay. Uh, because he's told at the morgue that the, the doctor is able to tell him that this person is older than seven, you know, this, this, this dead burnt person is probably around 17 years old, 16 or 17, because they don't have fillings, their teeth and everything. And it's also revealed that the elementary school has been broken into. I, w I do want to acknowledge that this whole moment with the charred corpse that, um, they reveal is a very, it's a great effect. It looks fucking amazing. Uh, it's, it's shockingly gory, considering all things considered with the franchise, you know. Um, at this point, like, the first film was relatively um, subtle with its with its violence, with its gore. Um, it was scary. It was suspenseful. But you didn't get a lot of, like, big open wounds or anything like that. And then you suddenly see this charred fucking corpse and it's, it's pretty gross to look at. So yeah, I think that's pretty great. Um, I do love the little tie-ins time again, time back into the original material. I picked up on that as well. And I think it's, it's really expertly handled. 
Um, I do love though that like when it's brought up that it's this, likely the seventeen year old that was killed. Like Loomis is obviously like oh, oh. but even the the cops are like oh, let's just uh, let's talk about it later. Let's not acknowledge this. Like this is such a secondary situation. A seventeen year old has died at your hands. <laughs> like yeah, and an, and a horrible fiery death. Like this is not a pleasant death, and they're just like it's just so glossed over. Back at the hospital, Karen is doing her little thing where she gets buzzed from a room and she goes into the room to check it out. And we see like there's this lump on this bed. And as she approaches the bed, it jumps out and grabs her. We get a good stinger. And it just happens to be Bud. Um, and she's, of course, mad at him. I think she like grabs his finger and like bends it back or something. And she's like, I could have used these on you. She has a snippers, but she's also like very smitten with him because then he's like, Oh honey, happy Halloween. And she's like, you are the biggest asshole I've ever met. But then he like kisses her and he suggests that they go into the uh, therapy room because his finger needs some therapy. Thank God this therapy room has this fucking massive goddamn jacuzzi. Like, is this, is this common Troy? Do they actually have things like this? I don't know. Uh, it makes for a great set piece, so I'm all for it, it. But like, I don't know. I mean, I guess this is a small Midwestern hospital, so maybe like for elderly patients doing some sort of physical therapy, they would have this giant hot tub. I I don't know, Roger. I don't know. Um, I'm just going with it. But you know, I mean, you, you you get this cute dynamic between Karen and Bud. We get a moment with Lori in her room, and she's having a dream of her. <laughs> Her adopted mother, like, it's very, like, I thought this came off as very cold. Like, tell, I'm not your mother. I'm not your real mother. I've told you that. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. She has this vision of her, like, visiting Michael in the hospital with her ugly, with her doll. And he turns around and, like, gives her a s- evil smirk. And, and that's about all we get. That's about all we get. But we do, it's enough to kind of start piecing things together that potentially there's more to these two characters. It's enough, but I will say, like, for what they're showing us here, I am surprised that they didn't give us a bit more. Like, it's not like there's a second dream sequence or everything. You just get a couple flashes of these really simple visuals, and then that's it. That's all it is. I guess, yeah. I remember, uh, for some reason, I remember them there being, like, more flashbacks. I don't know. I, I haven't seen this movie for a couple of years, but I just remember, like, I thought there was more flashback sequences. But I do know that, you know, there is the there is the made-for-TV cut that is completely, well, not completely different, but different than this one. It has a different ending uh, and things like that, With at least with the fate of Jimmy. So maybe that was the one. Because I, I used to watch this film, like, every year on Halloween on, like, USA. You remember USA would play Halloween, Halloween 2 on Halloween. I would watch it every year, and I think that was the television cut, and there are different things in that version. Um, so maybe there were, I don't know, more scenes of flashbacks. But now Bud is in the hot tub in the therapy room. Yes, it's an elaborate therapy room with this giant hot tub. And he watches Karen undress right down to her big bosoms. We get to see some big bosoms. We got to see PJ Soul's bosoms in part one. We get to see these bosoms in part two. And she gets in, they start to kiss and she's like, oh, the water's just too hot. And in the meantime, we do see Michael Myers come in to the control room and turn the temperature up to the red zone to the point where she tells Bud, it is too hot. You need to get out and and check. He's like, no, it's cold. And she says, well, it could get cold in here. So Bud goes out and checks the, he, he gets out. We see a butt shot, a male butt shot, which is rare for, you know, this time period for a slasher film. So I appreciate that. 
So as he's checking, she gets out and she's sitting on the ledge of the hot tub. So we see behind her, like the little glass room and Michael comes up behind Bud and I'm assuming throws like a something around his neck uh, and, and strangles him. Now I'm hoping, and I don't want to say this for like logistical reasons. I, I'm hoping it's like a sharp wire or like barbed wire because he dies like within two seconds, like literally like he throws the thing around his neck, pulls him and he's like drops dead. So wire i don't know but you get this nice moment with then michael slowly approaching karen and she thinks it's bud and there's this point where he puts his hand on her shoulder ever so gently she's like caressing his fingers and she's like you want to go to to breakfast i gotta get back to her don't be mad she starts like sucking his fingers you know thinking it's bud until she turns up and looks up and it's michael myers and we get I want to say this is one of the most iconic death scenes of the franchise. Wouldn't you agree? Because he has turned oh, yeah. he has turned the he has turned the hot tub up to scorching, which I want to I want I need to know why why would a hot tub that people are using have an option to go to scorching? It literally there is a an option, a button <laughs> on this hot tub that says scorching. <laughs> Who use? Who would use that? Are the you, are you putting the babies in there and boiling them? The babies boiling the babies. Oh my god! A, why would there be a scorching setting on a hot tub, Roger? Please. I what I'm thinking is because this is in the olden days of the 1980s and things were just simpler then. I think that in order to you had to operate the thing to get it to a certain point. You had to heat it up and then you had to I don't know maybe let it cool down. I don't know how this shit works. So I think it was easier for things to go awry. Back then, um, there's no excuse. I'm trying to pull it out of my ass. It's you know what it's for. It's to have a great fucking kill scene, and you're right. It's a memorable fucking kill scene. Even like with with Bud in the background, feels like it could be disposable. You know, you just see his uh, his kind of um, uh, blurred silhouette behind the glass. You know, getting grabbed, getting choked out. I think you're right. It was probably something that he used to probably cut his throat with with it because he does go down pretty quick. But I love the fact that she's so oblivious to it. She's pinning her hair up, the water, the, the bubbling of the water. She can't hear any of the struggle over it. And she just has no fucking idea. And it does make for the whole sequence to be very um intense, even in its silence. You, you know, you as the viewer, you are completely aware of what's about to happen. And when she starts nibbling on those fingers, I mean, I look down and see those dirty ass fucking fingers. I'd be like, this is not Bud. He was just in this fucking jacuzzi. He would be clean. Those hands are looking rough but she's nibbling on them um and then yeah she has this really impressive kill sequence with her face getting submerged over and over into this scalding hot water as her skin is peeling off like this hospital could easily have a lawsuit on its hand if someone if someone accidentally chose to go to scalding scorching and turn it all up up all the way someone's gonna die in that fucking hot tub and, and in this case they do yeah, I mean it's it's a pretty intense death because he holds her head underwater for a few seconds, lifts it up, and each time he pulls her face out, her skin is more and more like just hanging off her face. It's a beautiful effect, and he throw when he throws her body down, we see her her whole face is just beet red and skin is just peeling off of it. It's it's very very effective. Yeah, so so now Bud and poor Karen are no longer with us. We cut to the elementary school and this is a whole scene I could do without. I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I just feel like it's doesn't really do anything to advance the plot. Uh, like they cut to the elementary school. Loomis, 
Loomis and, and the cops explore this classroom. We do see that Michael has stuck a knife in a, in a picture of, with a little girl that the, uh, the cop is like, oh, the sister. And then we see that Michael in blood wrote Sam Hain on the wall or on the chalkboard. I don't like this thing. I don't know if Michael Myers would write Sam Hain. Loomis is trying to explain like what it is. Like it's a, it's a pagan ritual when lovely, lovely nurse chambers shows up, you know, she was the one in part one who gets attacked in the, in the car, the night that Michael disappears. And she's obviously in, she comes back for H2O is the opening kill. She comes back for Halloween ends and is, or Halloween kills and is wasted, but she's here. She's here. And she tells Loomis that she needs to talk to him. So they go out into the hallway and she's like, you've been ordered back to Smith's Grove by the governor. There is a marshal waiting for you. They don't want anybody from Smith's Grove to be involved with what's happened here tonight. We have this escaped mental patient. So you need to, you need to go back. So Loomis is like, well, okay. He doesn't really have a choice because there's a marshal waiting for him. I think it's worth acknowledging here, Troy, uh, the, what you mentioned with the Sam Hain aspect, I completely agree. The scene feels very forced. Like this is a scene to me where they're like, they're really trying to force the sibling relationship because there's that whole children's drawing of the family together with the knife sticking, sticking into the table, like through the sister, like really hitting the nail on the head, making it clear like, oh boy, this is her brother. If you can't put the pieces together, you're fucking stupid. Um, I don't know, like, what even brought him necessarily to the elementary school. Like, I, uh, is that supposed to be something he drew, like, when he was younger? Or did he just draw it just now? Did another kid draw it and he chose to just use it as reference? It's not explained. But the whole Sam Hain thing is very much the stepping stone into, like, what we get from, like, part five moving forward with the whole Cult of Thorn really leaning into all of this like supernatural mythological nonsense that I can just frankly I can do without. So one thing I really do not like about this um I don't want to say this film because this is a pretty minor element altogether. They don't get too deep into it, but they start to introduce the idea a bit of him being like having this supernatural element to what he is and i could definitely do without that i don't care for that i like it best when michael myers is just human um but it certainly starts to cross over into the world of the fantastical here and this is that first step that it took in that direction i'm not a fan of it either i 100 percent agree with you yes i, I yeah I, I would have been content if this was just left out uh we go back to the hospital. Jimmy goes into Lori's room to, to tell her, you know, I know you don't know me very well, but I'm not going to let anything happen to you. When he realizes that she is basically catatonic, like she's just staring straight off into space. She doesn't even know he's in there. So she, so he has to run and get the nurses and, you know, Janet's lovely Janet runs to Dr. Mixter's office to tell her, tell him, Hey, you need to come. Lori Strode has had a reaction to the medication. And she gets into his massive office. There's like a shower going, but nobody's in it. So she shuts the water off and then she goes into his actual office office and he's facing away from her sitting at his desk. And she's like, Dr. Mixer, Dr. Dr. Mixer. And she walks up slowly. And we've seen this sort of same scene in many films, but it's, it's done equally impressive here where she finally approaches him and turns him around. And there is a needle syringe 
um, sticking out of his eyeball. Very well done. And she like backs up and I love this shot of Michael Meyer just emerging. I mean, almost like flowing out of the darkness. I mean, it's so seamless. He just pops. He just comes out of the darkness, grabs poor Janet and shoves the syringe into the side of her eyeball, killing her. Apparently, I, I, I don't know. I guess that would kill you. I I mean, it, it goes into like where her temple, like right above her eye. So I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, it goes. In, I mean, I'm guessing it goes into her brain and I'm guessing whatever is in it, he's maybe injecting it. I don't know. Um, I think I'm going to make a statement. I think the shot of, of her realizing that the doctor is dead, that whole moment of her backing up is is probably the most beautiful shot in the franchise. Um there's so much great about it. Her her reaction, she can't even scream. She's like, she's so taken aback. And like the, the expression on her face, I just, I buy it. I a hundred percent buy it. The, the, the shot is framed. So in the bottom left corner, you still see like the, the silhouette of the doctor's face with the, the syringe sticking out of the eye. And that's really fucking uncomfortable. And then you get the shot of the, the needle, the syringe actually going into the side of her temple and going all the way in. And it's just like, Oh my God. But that shot of her backing up and him coming out of the darkness is cinema magic. It is stunning. It's so beautiful. There are so many pretty moments in this movie. I just think that one is the best. No. And it, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's very much replicating the uh, whole Michael coming out of the darkness at Lori Strode, you know, after she finds the bodies upstairs, but I think it's actually done better here. It's, it's smoother. I mean, it's like he just flows out of the darkness. It's really impressive. Like guys, if you haven't seen this movie for a while, go back and just, I mean, this is peak, peak Michael Myers mask emerging moment. This is the best one in the entire franchise. I, I, I totally agree with you. So Jimmy is just running around the hospital. He's trying to find nurse Alves. Um, Jill gets like a buzzer sound. So she has to leave Lori's room. And when she does, you know, we get this moment of like Jimmy running around Jill nurse, Jill leaving the room. And then Michael slowly coming up the hallway. He makes his way into Lori's room and, you know, he sees a lump on the bed and he takes a scalpel and starts stabbing the bed. We realize that Lori has snuck out of her room very quickly and she's put pillows under her bed. I have a question for you. Do you think that Lori was actually having a reaction to the medication or do you think that Lori is at a point where she needed to get the fuck out of there because she knew shit was about to happen and that she faked that whole very strange catatonic state with her eyes wide open? I thought she had died. Like, like the first time I saw this movie, I was like, oh my God, like Lori just is going to, she's dead. But no, she, she's just so catatonic. Her eyes are wide open. I don't know, like what would do that to somebody? Uh, but so quickly she bounces back. Uh, this is almost something in a way I could almost have done without this as well. This whole like weird catatonic moment. I think they could have found some other way to break everybody else up because it's just out of nowhere. And then uh, she, before you know it, she's up and running again, you know? Yeah. I was definitely had questions about that. I, 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 I like the fact that you mentioned that she, could be faking the catatonic state because she knows that, or she has a feeling that something is going, is going down. Although I don't really think that I don't think a lot has happened so far in the film in terms of like weird things happening at the hospital, that that would really be a thing. I also question like, why would she get out of bed and why would she put pillows under the sheets? Like, what is she doing? Where is she going? This whole thing doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If I'm being honest with you, it's like the one part of the film where I like really am, like, uh, 
you know, I'm not really meshing with what you're trying to put out here, which it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I wish they would have made it a little bit more seamless in terms of storytelling about what was actually going on here. Because I don't have any idea why Laurie would get out of bed and put pillows on. I, I don't know. And there's no like, there's nothing that's really happened so far in the film that would lend that to make sense. It's not like something has happened where people are like, Oh my God, you know, blah, blah, blah was found dead or who's missing. There's nothing has really happened. I will say there is the moment when they acknowledge the phone lines are cut and she takes the phone and she listens. And I I wonder if she's almost like, this is all too familiar. You know, I wonder if she's already suspecting something. Um, And I will say it gets back on track real quick. As soon as Lori's up and running, I'm fine with it. Everything they're giving me now of Lori waddling around, completely drugged up with that gimp leg, I could watch it all night. Well, she, you know, Michael Myers stabs at her. She's not there. And then we see that she is like limping down the hallway. Nurse uh, Jill goes back to her room and sees that she's gone. Um, so Lori has basically stumbled into another room. She tries to use the phone, but it's dead. And then she, you know, hears some noises in the hallway, looks out and shuts the door and just kind of cowers there for a moment and i feel like she falls asleep for a little bit she does oh she definitely does i mean she's still really in a drugged up stupor which does add to the fear factor greatly but i love that for a moment she's so out of it that she just passes out and there's another great thing they do with her where you notice all of her shots whenever they do her pov it has this like very like dreamy vaseline kind of filter around the border of it like every time you see through Lori's eyes it's very distorted you feel like you're looking through the eyes of someone who is heavily sedated. It adds a lot. Well, in the meantime, Loomis and uh, Marion have been led away by the marshal. Uh, and Deputy Hunt assures Loomis that they're going to find Michael. We get this cool moment where Nurse Jill is frantically looking for uh, Mr. Garrett while we see Michael like stalk through the hallways on the monitor. Um, she goes to check a room and Jimmy grabs her shoulder and startles her. And there's this really nice moment between those two where, where they're talking and he's like, you know what? People are missing. I can't find anybody. Uh, I'm going to go look for, for, for the nurse and to the doctor. You go to the East wing. And if you can't find anybody, you need to get in your car and drive to the sheriff's. Meanwhile, Michael is behind this curtain. We see a silhouette behind this curtain in the room, watching him the whole time. It's really creepy, really effectively done. And then we get the poor moment where we find out what happened to nurse Alves. And I'm kind of, like I said, I kind of disappointed in this because I I wanted her character to have a moment because she, at this point she's just disappeared in the film and she was such a prominent, like I said, dominating figure in the film. And then to have like her reveal to be like Jimmy going into a room and finding her laying dead on a operating table. And Michael has taken the time to stick a syringe into her arm with a hose and like drain her of all her blood. I don't know how I feel about that. I think if we would have seen the sequence, it would have been awesome. But I think as a reveal, it, it does make for a very beautiful sequence. Cause you've got the bright red, the blood is so rich in the sequence. It's by far the most volume of blood you've gotten in this franchise up to this point. I mean, it is a massive pool of blood beneath her. And as Jimmy goes to run, he slips in it. He knocked, he gets knocked out. It's a very pretty shot. I agree. I think that this character would have been very exciting to have seen her meet this demise. So we know how she got into that position, but as a reveal, it's quite dramatic. I will give it that. No, it is. 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is beautiful. There, the the amount of blood on this floor is just like, whew. yeah. And Jimmy falls, smashes his head. Uh, Nurse Jill runs out to her car because she can't find anybody. She gets in her car; it won't start. And there's this moment, like when she gets out of her car, she realizes not only have her tires been slashed, but everybody else's. Now, this is the moment my ass would have ran out. I would not have gone back in that hospital. My ass would have been running down. You were like, you were in the middle of a city, like literally like the downtown is right there. Take your ass running and, and go get help. Her dumb ass goes right back into the hospital. Ooh, but I love that scene, Troy, when she's like trying to start the car and she sees, I mean, you're absolutely right. I would have gotten the fuck out of there. But the moment when she starts to realize, oh my God, all the, the tires are slashed. Like it's a pretty chilling moment. Jill's character, I would say is the one character in the hospital that gets the least attention overall. She doesn't have a romantic subplot. She doesn't have any subplot other than being a nurse, but she's very present, you know, she, and, and she makes it longer than most of them. Um, but she finally starts to get some meat here uh, when she's going off and trying to find Lori going to make a run for it. And she does a great job with her scenes. I wish she had more. No, she does. And again, iconic death scene, iconic death scene. She runs into the hospital. She runs back into the hospital Lori, in the meantime, has crawled out of that room. She's limping down the hallway. Nurse Jill comes in and sees Lori and calls out to her. Lori, Lori kind of turns around and, and kind of ignores her and keeps going down the hallway. And Jill's like, no, Lori, please stop. And Lori turns around again. And we see that now Michael Myers is right behind Nurse Jill and stabs her in the back with a scalpel, lifts her off the ground. I mean, we see this in full glory. I mean, her shoes fall off her feet. Um, and then he just like throws her onto the ground. I, I mean, this whole sequence, again, one of the more memorable death scenes from the franchise. I will definitely have to say that this is probably one of the most memorable kill scenes in a slasher in general. Like, I mean, I have seen that visual, her lifted up, her shoes dropping off. Like, what a great conclusion. Like, it's the shoes hitting the ground are used to like kick everything into motion. Like the tempo picks up. You hit a chase scene. Lori takes off running, finally. Um, but it is so well executed, so well timed. It's one of my favorite kills in the franchise. Um, and I think a lot of people would say that. And these are the moments in this movie. You mentioned this earlier. It's it's chock full of iconic sequences. This film, I dare would say, almost maybe has more iconic kills or iconic scenes almost than the first one in a way. Um, the first one is just more iconic in general because of what it created. But this one, some of these visuals, I mean, come on. So good. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the rules of a sequel, remember, this is what we learned from Scream, a rule of a sequel. You have to have the body count has to be higher. You have to be a more elaborate. And we definitely get that here. Um, we're getting, a, we're getting some, we're getting explosions. We're getting chasings. We're getting all kinds of shit. But yeah, this is the moment the movie kicks into high gear. Lori takes off running. We get this, we get the Halloween theme pumping into the speakers. Now she's running down the stairs. Michael's just slowly methodically following her. She gets into the basement where she bumps into Mr. Garrett's body hanging, um, from an electrical cord down in the basement. And like, you know, you're, you're really feeling for Lori because there's like, I mean, these are just like, she's not familiar with this area. She's running into various rooms. She feels like she's trapped and here comes Michael. So she has no uh, option, but to like get up and crawl out this window uh, into another room. And we have to keep in mind, she has a fucking fractured leg. She's been stabbed in the shoulder. Uh, there's this moment where she's like crawling through this window and Michael's like literally 
it's like hacking at her, trying to slice her feet with the, with the, uh, the scalpel, but she's able to fall into the other room. I mean, you get the, again, another, I would just want to say it again. I'm going to keep using this word, another iconic scene of her running to that elevator basked in that red Argento lighting as she is hitting that elevator button frantically and it's slowly coming and Michael is just getting closer and closer and closer. And finally the elevator opens and she gets in and she's against the wall. And as the elevator door closes, he sticks his hand in. Luckily it wasn't one of those elevator doors that open back up. If you stick your hand in (laughs) because it closes and she's able to get out. But I mean, this whole thing is just so well done. It's suspenseful. It's beautiful with the red lighting. Um, it's, it's great. It's great. This scene is this film at its finest. I mean, this is honestly, this is a slasher genre at its finest. It is taking its time. It is filling you with tension. I mean, cause you're right. Like the fact that she has no idea where she is, it just makes it all the more terrifying. I mean, she's, she's trying to navigate her way through this horrifying fucking basement And the whole bit with the window and everything, it's just so well executed. You see his feet moving through the glass. You hear him coming. You see him through all all of the pipes and everything. You can see his figure moving towards her, building and building and building. These are the moments that I think that this sequel stands up above the rest of the films that follow. Um, I, I I don't understand, you know, we were, when you're in, you and I were getting ready for this review and we we're like kind of doing our homework. I mean, we both acknowledge that this film holds a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. And for this alone, I don't, I don't agree or believe that Rotten Tomatoes really has any form of clout to it whatsoever, because if this film is going to hold a 33% when other films of this franchise that are significantly less coherent and do a far worse job of scaring the shit out of me hold like 70-80% get the fuck out of town this movie knew what the fuck it was doing and in moments like this it's phenomenal it's phenomenal don't tell me that this is not a quality horror moment that this moment isn't delivering what it should yeah, I don't get the 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I did not, I, I guess I didn't take the effort to click on it and see like how many actual reviews are there. The only thing I can think of as to why people or critics would shit on this film is because it is much, much, much more of a slasher film than part one. Does that make sense? Part one, you know, is, 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 is recognized for being like a beacon of suspense. Uh, there's very little gore in part one. It's all about the build up, the suspense. This one goes full for slasher film, even though there are these suspenseful sequences. And we know, Roger, how critics react to slasher films. And that's the only thing I can think of as to why this one isn't as widely uh, beloved by critics is because they just dismiss it as, oh, well, that's just now it's just blood and, and killing and a high body count. Ignoring the fact that there are sequences like this in this film that are just breathtaking, right? Yeah. So she gets out of the hospital and she's able to hide into a, in, in a car. And in the meantime, Loomis and nurse chambers are in the car with a drop with the uh, cop driving them away. Loomis gives this long explanation about what Sam Hine means. And like pagans druid priests would do rituals where they'd sacrifice people and burn things alive because they thought they would show them the future. Blah, blah, blah. I don't give a shit. What I do give a shit about is Nurse Chambers revealing something here that either will piss you off 
or you like, as we've discussed. And it is the fact that there was a top secret file on Michael Myers that nobody knew about and not even Dr. Loomis. And because of what happened tonight, Halloween night, the governor of Illinois uh, dictated that the file finally be open. And what the file reveals is that Lori Strode is Michael's sister. She was born two years before he was committed. Um, and then when their parents died, she was adopted by the Strodes who demanded that the whole, all the records be sealed for her protection. It comes, you know, it's, it's all, it's all laid out there. Loomis automatically is like, shit, that is why he's back. He killed his one sister 15 years ago. He's back to kill the other one. We need to get back to Haddonfield hospital. He's like, driver the cop he tells the cop take us back and the driver's like no i can't do that he pulls out his gun he's like uh your 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 uh commands have changed and he like shoots he actually shoots the fucking cop car window out and the cop has no choice but to slam on the brakes and speed away but it is revealed that uh michael is Lori's brother now okay fine it gives i'm i'm okay with it i would be i'm honestly roger to be honest with you i'm indifferent to it i could go either way like i'm not die hard one way or the other to be honest with you uh, i i i would have been fine if it was left out of this film and michael was just back to to wreak havoc and fine i don't know i get why it with this with these two films especially it does provide some cohesion it does provide purpose and i get that i'm good with that you know, I, I know a lot of people were not okay with it because it, the whole concept of Halloween, the first one, is the fact that you just have this man who's a s- psychopath that has no uh, discerning factor as far who, as far as who he kills. He's the boogeyman. He just shows up, and whoever is in his path, that's who's he's going to fixate on. I think a lot of people like that version of Michael Myers better than realizing that he isn't just a random boogeyman showing up back into town and just happens upon these three girls. Because again, some people will argue that it's scarier when there is no motive, right? And when there's no purpose, he just wants to kill you. Um, so I get both ways. I, I do. I do. I see both. I see definitely see both sides. I, like I said, I'm indifferent either way for this film. It does provide the cohesion it's brought up and then it's like, just not hammered. It's just not a th- a huge thing in this film, if that makes sense. It's brought up in the last five minutes of the movie. It's not like it's lingered on. There's huge discussions about it. It's not like Lori even knows or has a conversation with anybody about, about it. It's just brought up by nurse chambers. And then the film literally is ends in five minutes. I think it, because it's more of um, a, a subplot than really the focal plot overall, like the revelation of, of her being the sibling is, it is almost in a way an afterthought, but I think that makes it feel more intentional because it's not like they're just shoving it down your throat, you know, like it's all building up to something. You have these little breadcrumbs that are being handed to you, some of them a little more aggressively than others, like that whole fucking classroom sequence. But you've got all these moments of, of Lori noticing things, acknowledging things, realizing things. But there's so much more going on here in the town and what's unfolding. And I think that's why it works for me. It is It is not the driving force of the film. And so when the revelation happens, it's like, oh, shit, there is motive to the mayhem. There is a motivation here. Michael is not just a completely soulless killing machine. 
You know, there is reasoning to what he's doing, which I think is more in line with some of the things he's done over the course of the whole franchise, picking and choosing his victims. Uh, he does certain things when it benefits him, but he can also try to blend in at times. You know, so many moments he's walked through neighborhoods unnoticed with his mask on because people think it's part of the Halloween holiday, you know? Um and he, so he's gone relatively unnoticed at times. And I think that like for him to be moving about with purpose makes sense to me. It's all been kind of coming down to this. So I, I get why they did this. And I really, I do favor this, this outcome because it makes Lori's character feel a little more purposeful as well for me. Uh, instead of what we ended up seeing at the end of that 2018 movie, with which is her just being there for shits and giggles and, and nothing else, nothing more than just being one of the faces in the crowd, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I get, I get it. I totally get it. I get both sides of it. I, I just wish there was a moment of like acknowledgement with Lori's character where she realizes, oh shit, you know, this is my brother. Uh, like the, there's, there's some, there's some sort of climactic thing with that because it's, like I said, it's brought up and then the film ends. And if this, this film was the last sequel for a, a, a while, and I was just like, okay, that was brought up and kind of, and it still is then utilized in part four and five because Jamie is his niece and that's why he's specifically going after her. Uh, and then it's you kind of, you know, dropped again, but yeah, so Lori back in the car, Lori's hiding in this car. She hears someone approaching. She's kind of cowering. The door swings open and Jimmy gets in and, you know, we're like, what the fuck? And he's like, you can tell he's just not all with it. He's trying to start the car. It won't start. And then all of a sudden he just like passes out. His head hits the steering wheel and, and the horn honks. And, you know, Lori has to pull him off the, the horn. She tries to start the car. It won't start. There's this moment where she opens the car door. She falls out onto the pavement. And again, another iconic moment. I keep saying that. Uh, she's crawling on the pavement. Loomis pulls up with the sheriff and, and nurse chambers. They get out. Lori tries to scream, but she can't scream until they're inside. Finally, she can get the scream out. And she finally is able to pull herself off of the pavement and start going towards the hospital. When all of a sudden, Michael Myers comes out from around the corner. And we get, again, that slow buildup, him just walking towards her as she's starting to run towards the hospital or banging on it violently. Let me in. Let me in. Someone help me. Finally, you know, they, they, they hear her and they let her in just as Michael Myers approaches. And I just love this moment where he doesn't even stop. They close the glass door of the hospital. He doesn't even stop. He walks right through the fucking glass. Just push. And of course, Loomis shoots him multiple times. I mean, this whole sequence, again, an expertly crafted uh, sequence of suspense where we are really wondering, is Lori going to make it? Is he going to get to her? Are they going to let her, are they going to let her in? It's, it mirrors the whole scene in the first one where she's trying to get into the, her house and, you know, Tommy's upstairs sleeping and she, she's throwing the flower pot and Michael is approaching. It's the exact same thing. It's done very well here. It is. It is. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's, a series of really great chase slash suspense moments, kind of one after another. What it launches into here, um, I'll say as it starts to build towards its climax, it's lucky that it has so many great big moments leading up to this because it does start to get a little far-fetched. You know, we're about to stray into some of that fantastical territory here, which I could, again, do without. Um, and I, I will say this whole moment, like you've got Marion runs out to call for the police. 
Um, she kind of becomes an afterthought. She's not really involved with the final showdown, which I find her character to be interesting because she's present in both of these movies, but she's overall a relatively minor aspect of both Halloween and Halloween 2. She doesn't do a ton, um, but she is a legacy character. But you've got this whole moment where you've got this, you know, the, the police transport who goes to check on the body. Loomis is like, don't touch him, he's not dead. And, <laughs> and uh, the, of course, he's not dead. And he sits up and he cuts the officer's throat. And it's one of the less impressive kills in the film. Um, I'm shocked that they really dropped the ball on this one as much as they did, because it really is clear that they had a blade with a blood pump behind it. It makes a line of blood. There's no incision. You can very clearly tell. Um, it's not my favorite kill in the movie. But it does set off into a fun chase scene, which is now Loomis and Lori together, which I think does have a payoff. It does. It does. You know, they run through the hospital. They barricade themselves in, in, a, in a room. When, and Michael, like he's in hot pursuit. Like he, um, he's like trying to bust through the hospital door, the door that they're in. He punches through the glass. Loomis is trying to give Lori a gun and she she's very hesitant to take it. But um you know, he, he lays it in front of her. Finally, Michael is able to like bust through this door and, you know, Loomis pulls his gun and tries to shoot him. And of course the gun won't go off. And Michael stabs Loomis in the stomach with the scalpel. And you get this moment where Michael is like now focused on Lori and she's just cowered in the corner and he's walking towards her with the scalpel. She finally fucking picks up the gun and she's like, Michael, Michael, stop. And there's this moment where he stops and he does that iconic, there's that word again, head tilt to look at her. And then he goes and starts right towards her again. And she, for for a 17-year-old girl that's never fucking shot a gun, she sure has good aim because she shoots him in both his fucking eyes. <laughs> like, right, like, psh, psh, both eyes. Perfect shot. But w- what it leads to is that amazing whoosh where he is bleeding from his eyes and he is hacked slashing the air with that scalp and it's making that swishing noise. Whoosh, whoosh. I fucking love that. I struggle with this moment because it is so far fetched that she could a hit him in both of his eyes and b that it would not kill him. Like this is the moment that you have to accept. Okay. There's gotta be something supernatural or fantastical about this guy because he just took a bullet to either eye and that bullet would go through that eye and enter his brain and kill this man. But somehow he's just crying blood like it's stigmata. And like, even the moment like where the blood runs down his face, like you can see the actor like has the eyes closed, blood streaming down his face. It's, it's a great moment, but like what it culminates to is it's also hard for me to palate. Like it does feel very far fetched. It's a great, moment of suspense as he's blindly slashing at both of them they're turning on gas canisters to distract him with the noise so he starts moving away from each of them they're trying to help each other i really like the set piece i like what it's doing but i don't i still don't buy it i don't believe yet that this is enough of a fantasy based film that this guy would not be dead well, okay yeah he's been well, he's been shot how many times he was shot 6 times in the first one He's been, she was shot like seven or eight times in, in this one when he came into the hospital. Or now he's just been shot in both of his eyes and he's still alert and trying to kill Lori. But I do like the fact that Loomis basically sacrifices himself to save Lori. He, he, they've, they've turned on all the gas the cans. 
He tells Lori to get the fuck out of there. She takes off running out of the hallway and Loomis confronts Michael and he says, Michael, it's time. And he takes out his lighter and lights it and fucking blows both of them to smithereens. Apparently not because Loomis Loomis comes back for Halloween four with like a few tiny little like burn marks on. And this dude would have been roasted like a fucking marshmallow. Come on. Oh, th- I don't buy it at all. Especially like after revisiting it, I was like, God, I forgot the explosion was so fucking big. And I will say like, okay, Michael is blind here. Like Michael is blind. He's been shot in the eyes. Loomis, I appreciate what you're doing here, but you're telling me you can't, like, I don't know, throw something, make a noise, distract Michael, make him walk towards the noise, and then sprint the fuck out of there and throw the lighter behind you. And I don't know, save save yourself? I feel like Loomis could have gotten out of this predicament, uh, but he chose to sacrifice himself. Okay. I've always, you know what, even when I was a kid, before I would, like, my mind was, you know, sharp. <laughs> I never understood why Loomis sacrificed himself because there are so many ways he could have easily done that. All he would have had Michael's blind, like literally. Yeah. Like you said, throw something in a quarter, run out in the hallway, grab a paper towel, set it on a fire, throw it in the room. Why would you sacrifice yourself for Michael Myers? I guess, you know, the only thing I, I don't know, but, and then, yeah. And then, but then to have him come back in Halloween four and literally have like a few scars on him, just that he, that's even more insult. Yeah, but we do get this moment where Lori's cowering out in the hallway and we do get Michael lumbering out fully in flames until his body falls onto the floor. And just we watch his mask burn as Lori watches on in horror. And then basically, you know, it's the next morning. She's she's wheeled out of the hospital with the with nurse chamber. She's put in the back of an ambulance. It's very dark, gloomy, foggy out. Um and as the ambulance pulls away, starts to play Mr. Sandman and the credits roll over Michael's burned face as the fire is burning his face. Now, if you've seen the made for TV version, Roger, in that one or the TV version cut of it in that one, Jimmy is revealed to be in back of the ambulance with her and he's still alive, which is interesting why they really didn't include that in the theatrical one, but it would have set up a nice little kind of happy ending for Lori, but in the theatrical, like the DVD versions, it's not in there. Well, a lot of times with these films, they would go back and film additional footage after the fact they did that with the first movie. There are several dialogue scenes in the original Halloween that for the TV cut, you know, they filmed after the fact, so I'm I'm sure that was the case here. I really love the visual of like that misty, foggy, like you you just can't capture that with smoke machines. That was authentic. That had to be fucking authentic. That scene of the, the ambulance driving off. Um, there's a lot of great light flares and like light play in this movie in general. Like earlier in the movie when people are using their flashlights, when you see the ambulance siren lights and everything, they have these great flares that come up. And even up through the end, as you see the vehicle drive off into the mist, it's just so fucking eerie. I did think that for such a big climax and Laurie watching him walk out of the fire, like some kind of fantastical being that, you know, is obviously not human. Um, I did think that then to go to this sequence, you see the mass burning, you see her get wheeled out, she gets put in the ambulance, they drive away, that's it. I was shocked there wasn't a little bit more of a note of closure here. Um, I feel like it lacks that, especially with the idea that at, that t- at this time, I think they definitely thought, okay, Loomis has to be dead. Like, isn't anybody mourning him? 
Isn't anybody taking a moment to just catch their breath? Roger, nobody's mourning that 17-year-old boy, Ben Tramer, that got burned to death. I mean, this town is, I mean, it's, they're so oblivious to people dying, but no, I agree with you. That's the one, that's the one thing that I will say about this film that, you know, I think they, they missed the mark on and it's, if if they didn't, I think they really thought this would be the end of the Michael Myers saga and it really doesn't give you really any closure. And I guess that's maybe why I prefer the the tv version where jimmy is in the back of the ambulance with her because at least it gives us that that my, that Lori and jimmy could potentially become something and it, then it, then they use that in part four obviously but like yeah th- this ending that that's on the the, ver- the th- theatrical version where it's just her in the ambulance riding away and then we cut to him him burning not a lot of not a lot of closure but you know, uh, who am I to bitch? Because this is the most convoluted franchise in in history. So it's not like we have other films to to pick and choose from. I mean, it's a, this franchise is is a choose your own adventure a s- extravaganza. But with that said, Roger, I will adamantly say that this is one of the best sequels. Now, I know I, I also love four. I would say one, two, and four are my favorites easily. Um, if you want to know our actually, our, if you want to know our exact rankings of the, the Halloween franchise, all 13 films, join our Patreon for just $2 a month because we just did our rankings of all 13 films. $2, folks. That's that's nothing. That's peanuts. Uh, but one, one, two, and four are my favorites. And I can see why you have such an adoration for this film. Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, it's 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 a classic. It's a classic slasher film. It's a slasher film done right a sequel done right. I don't know what more you could really ask for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my my personal trilogy is this is is the original this and H2O. I think H2O is a great continuation and conclusion for Lori's personal story. Um and and that's that's what I stand by and that's all I need. Um I enjoy 4, but 4 directly leads into 5. So 4 opens the gateway to slip into uh, slippery territory. You know, I mean, it, it's it's definitely um, you can't really watch four without acknowledging that that is what opened the gateway to that whole fucking cult of thorn nonsense. That I just again, I just that's not what I look for out of this. But even I mean, I could say that about this film. Like this film did start to introduce the uh, the fantastical ideas, and and so that is one thing that I would say I walk away from this thinking, ugh, like I wish they would have just left that alone. Let this be a uh, slasher. There's so many great elements to this. You don't need that, but it's such a minor element of this movie that I can I can look past it and acknowledge that overall this film fucking delivers. And I will always say that you know the original Halloween is a better film and a more impactful film. But I would say this film is more fun. If I want to have fun watching a slasher, this has a higher body count. This has more blood, more gore. This just delivers in different departments. The original film is just more coherent and it's simpler because it's simple. It is more effective, but this movie knew what it came to do. It came to entertain audiences and kill people in violent fashion. And it does that with a lovely, beautiful visual quality. Again, the lighting, the set pieces, the hospital, it's all so perfect and it does a really great job of utilizing that space. And so I love the fuck out of this movie to this day. 
I stand by it, and I'm so happy we got to cover it. Absolutely, and I think I think a lot of our listeners are going to agree. And listeners, so now is your chance to let us know. You know, let us know on our social media or the, the Facebook group or on post. Where do you rank this original Halloween two in the grand scheme of the franchise? This franchise has thirteen entries into it, including the Rob Zombie, including the David Gordon Green, including everything. Where would you rank Halloween two, the original Rick Rosenthal, nineteen eighty one? Where is it on your list? We definitely want to know. Share with us your like top five Halloween films in the franchise. Uh, we would love to hear that. But um, yeah, with that, guys, that's Halloween too. We want to we want to say to you, happy, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. We're, we're gonna we'll be back next week. We we, we know that um, you know there's there's been some some lagging between episodes, but we're going to try to try to get back on track. So next week, Roger, we don't know what we're covering next week. So I guess it's going to be a surprise. We haven't discussed it. Listen, Evan, I'm moving into a new house. I'm staying in Airbnb. You guys don't need to fucking know my life, but just know that there's a lot going on yet. Still, we managed to produce an episode for you in time for Halloween because that's how much we care. Um, and I am about to go back into filming my final chunk of meet the movie. Indiegogo is still active for that up through the 1st of November, though we've technically hit our goal, so I think it'll just continue because it's in demand, so I feel very fancy. And if you don't want to contribute to that, you can always contribute to Troy's new Indiegogo for Hollow Lake, which I'm also involved with, and that is already at 50% and needs to keep climbing. Um, because with the amount of support we saw in the first couple of weeks, like this has no business not hitting that goal. Like we got to get to a hundred percent. Absolutely. No, I was, I was floored by the amount of, um, yeah, yeah. That, that we reached almost 50% in the first week. It's amazing. And I think more casting notices are coming out and check it out guys. It's, you know, check out hollow Lake, the movie on Facebook, check out meet the movie on Facebook. You'll see, you know, um, we're, we're really excited about, about these things. So if you want to contribute to the Indiegogo's free, either film or both film, we would love you to death, but we will be back next week with, with a new title. Um, I don't know what yet, so stay tuned. Uh, uh, and with that guys, happy Halloween, happy Halloween, happy Halloween, Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>